Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarowski Show as I speak. It is what's today. Good God. Friday, February 16, 2024. Here's what's uh, the news of the day. This story just broke. Crane's Chicago Business. I know what you're thinking, Ben. How'd you get to read an article by Crane's Chicago Business? Because they have that paywall. The Matumbo paywall that blocks your efforts to uh, get to the, uh, the story. Good question. No, I did not pay for it. I refused to pay for it. It's part of my personal, personal boycott of Cranes. All these freaking years, I've given you my story, Cranes, for free. Out of reciprocity, you think you cheapskates would give allow me access to your paper. But, but no, it's, all, it's a one-way street, huh, Cranes? Well, anyway, someone sent it to me. That's how I know about it. Uh, so thank you, uh, mysterious someone. And uh, so this is an article. Um, it's such a joke. Uh, so everybody absolutely knew. Everybody, even Chicagoans knew that the White Sox stadium, like the Bear Stadium, was freak, freaking scam, and they were going to end up paying for it. Even over the the way you uh, drop out a proposal for a stadium, first you drop out the idea, you get the sizzle, all right, the sizzle, the steak. You bring in the public with that, and you don't even talk about uh, funding it. So you get the papers to go, wow, great proposal for a White Sox stadium. It's going to take this big chunk of undeveloped land and turn it into the Garden of Eden. And then they show you renditions of it. And you as the people go, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. I can imagine myself being there. That's the Chicago's response to something we see in the uh, uh, mainstreams. And then <laughs> at some point, they got to break the news to you that you are going to pay for this. So how do you get you to pay for it? Well, you, they promise that it's really, it's not really about it's not really about the handout to the rich guy that will make it more profitable to him. Oh, no. I mean, because here's the reality, ladies and gentlemen. The White Sox and the developer are going to make a lot of money off of this deal. The more that the public pays for what it costs to build the deal, the more money they'll make. Because they will have spent less, and therefore, there's more to make in profit. Duh! Even I know that. I'm an old lefty. So, But the, <laughs> the papers can't say, we're giving them money so they make even more money. What the papers say is... This is a very complex development, very difficult development, a lot of obstacles in the way. They're so complicated, you, an ordinary person, would never understand. So we'll just boil it down to this. And they need the money to make this work for you. 
all about making things work for you. And so then that's when they hit you. They go, well, this is about infrastructure, infrastructure. Yeah, because without your money, they wouldn't have a sewer. And so if they don't have a sewer, they wouldn't build their stadium. We'll pay for your own damn store, sewer. <laughs> Why am I, you know, where's it written in what book that my distinguished guest has to pay for your sewer? My distinguished guest waiting on. She pays property taxes. Your property tax is going to go up, distinguished guest, for the sewer, for the White Sox. And they don't need it. Anyway, but here's the point I'm leading up to with this rant. In the middle of this story in the Sun-Times, there's a blind quote. And a blind quote is a quote where they don't identify who the person's saying it is. And at my ancient age of whatever I am, and I'm old, I have decided that blind quotes should be outlawed. Distinguished guests, think about this, outlawed. They don't do anything. This particular blind quote is an endorsement of the stadium, okay? So this blind quote says, here, I'm calling it up. Um <laughs> The new ballpark is a very, very important engine for this investment, but it is a smallish component as an overall dollar amount of the project that will in many ways change the face of the city of Chicago. I'm like, why is that a blind quote? Why, who's, why are you protecting the identity of that person? What did that person say? That I can understand a blind quote where someone dares to speak up against a tyrant, and if their name is used, they could be slaughtered. That's understandable, okay? I'm protecting the identity of this person. She is about to say something about Putin. And there's a good chance that Putin will blow up her plane if he hears that she said this quote. But we're talking about some hustlers trying to get the public to pay for something the public shouldn't pay for. The money should be paid for, like, schools and stuff. Why are we protecting this guy? Like, <laughs> what's his risk? And here's my theory. My theory is this person's identity is being protected because this person doesn't want the world to know that he's feeding information to cranes. That's why we're protecting him. So if I were a professor at Medill, which is outrageous concept, since I can barely use a comma in a sentence. Well, do you think they teach commas at Medill? I would have a whole course in not using blind quotes. All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce herself and I'll get her thoughts on this topic. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. I'm Ramana Hussain. I'm a member of the editorial board and a columnist at the Chicago Sun-Times. Yes, and she's known to write a lot of controversial columns. She's got a lot of guts, Ramana Hussain. And, uh, but never, <laughs> you know, she takes, she, she takes a tough stand and is not afraid when they all pound away at her. Uh, unlike this blind quote guy in Cranes, I'm going to hide under a table and let Cranes just carry my water for me. Your thoughts on blind quotes, Ramada, do you agree with me that they should be outlaw unless the person's life is in jeopardy? Uh, or do you say, no, Ben, I'll do anything to help a source? Go. Well, first of all, I wanted to mention that I actually had dinner with a bunch of friends um, that I started my first job with last week. And one of them worked for Cranes and I've never had a Cranes login. And she was telling us about an article on Cranes and I'm like, I, I don't have a login. And then like five minutes later, we have like a text group and she sent, she sent me all her login information. So now I, now I have access to Cranes. <laughs> so if I want to read an article, I can read it. Um, yeah, a, blind quotes. Um, no, I, I, I agree with you because that quote really doesn't really say anything controversial or anything that might, 
you know, jeopardize someone's job or, um, or their lives or their safety, as you mentioned. Um, I know there's been cases where, you know, you have a, a, an authority figure give you information and, and they're a pretty good source, but they just don't want it to be known that they're the ones giving you information. And if it's something that's quite sensitive, that could cost them, like I mentioned, their like livelihood, I kind of take that into consideration. So I I've used, you know, if I have a source and they've given me a lot of information and they just don't want to be quoted, if it's something that's sensitive, particularly, then I get it. But yeah, I, I agree. Like that quote really doesn't say anything except bolster the, um, yeah. you know, basically bolster, bolster the excuse to make another, you know, stadium for the White Sox. And Absolutely. so, so yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you on this one. I didn't know it was called a blind quote. I just thought it was just when you, when you don't actually, when you use the unnamed source, that's what I call it. So I wasn't sure what you meant by blind quote, but no, but it is, it is the same thing. Upon, upon reflection, I'm not even sure I used the term correctly. You know what? If Mick Dunking were editing this uh, podcast, like he used to edit my copy, he would, he would put in the right phrase and nobody would ever know that I used the wrong phrase. And they would think I was really smart. Uh, so we should have Mick like just like hovering over the conversation, correcting us constantly. Uh, I think it's called the blind quote, whatever. Readers, listeners, excuse me. When my listeners, when I say something wrong, Romana, and when any of guests say something wrong, trust me, listeners respond. So uh, we'll get the correct phrase. Uh, all right. A, a cousin to the blind quote uh, is the readback quote. Uh, and uh, we were, um, you were telling me you just completed your column. The last one of the last details was a readback of quotes, and I applauded you for that. Uh, and I, this is one of my favorite times. This is, it, again, if I was a Medill professor, a whole class on quotes, uh, including the when you don't reveal a source of the, of a, but you put the freaking quote in there. <laughs> that's a, that's. That's basically an advertisement. That's what that is. It's an advertisement, uh, especially when it's as innocuous as, oh, this is a great stadium for the city. Uh, oh, don't really going on a, a limb there, Mr. Blind Quote Guy. Take a strong stand. I don't know. But be against the slaughter in Gaza. Whoa. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to go on that riff. No, no. It's okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I do go back to um, reading quotes to people, especially when it's a sensitive topic. I, I, I don't do it like often, but I did in this in this particular case because this is about protests. And then I talked to one woman who works for this organization called Palestine Legal. And um, given the sensitivity of the um, information they deal with, and they're basically defending um the rights, um, the constitutional and civil rights of people who get in trouble for their Palestinian advocacy, including the two Northwestern students, two black Northwestern students who were charged for making those pro-Palestinian parody papers in Northwestern. Um, they represented them. And so she, I just wanted to make sure I was quoting her accurately and just use the right information that she gave. Um, you know, with this, this situation, like even like, you know, she was kind of hesitant um, for me to even use her picture, even though it's on the website. But, you know, just putting it into um, the Sun-Times article, just, um, uh, you know, you just have to kind of be sensitive for those things. So I, 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 
Um, just wanted to make sure I was quoting her correctly and just use the right stats that she gave me. So I, I get that. I get it from some situations, obviously with not every single matter, I'm not going to go back to the source and go, Hey, is that what you said? Because I know what they said and it's not really that sensitive or controversial. And so maybe like maybe half of the time, I think with my columns, I'm a lot more careful now because I don't write, I don't have too many things with my byline anymore. I do do editorials, but with my bylines and because I tend, I've been tending to write about um, the situation in the Middle East a lot. Um, The last couple of columns that I have done, if I did quote someone, I did go back to them and just kind of read back their quotes and, or show them what I'm using just so they know. Hmm. Well, I, I had a moment, uh, a revelation on this, Oh God, it's going to show how old I am compared to Ramana in 1990. I think that's when it was just pause and think Ramana where you were in 1990. I was already writing for the reader. Uh, and there was an article in the New Yorker that began with, uh, the statement that I'm paraphrasing, but all journalists are con men, uh, and they fool and trick, uh, their subjects, uh, into participating in the article. Uh, and that had a powerful impact on me. And uh, there, <laughs> I, I, I um, pledged to um, pretty much in any instance uh, share my article before I turned it in. And the editors, the reader, uh, shout out Mike Linehan, supported me in that endeavor. They only asked that I do it before they turned the article in because they wanted to deal with the article as a finished product. You get what I'm saying? And so not to have to go back and forth when a person asks for a change. Uh, and so I, I fell in the habit of reading the article to the main subject person. And anyone who wanted to read back quotes, I would do that. Uh, and it was because the feeling was that uh, journalists uh, are deceptive. And they lead subjects to believe that they're going to write about one thing and then they write about something else. Uh, and they trick subjects into talking to them. And, and, and it's actually, it's like, it, essentially, it's a con man. And I didn't want to be that. I wanted to be honest about what my intentions were and what I was doing uh, because then I, I wanted the subject to be honest. Uh, what's your thoughts about that? Do you think that's naive? What, just to go back and show people what you're doing or just kind no, of... No, naive to think that you wanted to be honest. No, I mean, I, I try to be honest because I know what you're saying because a lot of people feel like journalists. I mean, I think one time there was a... I think they asked, there was some sort of survey or like how people feel about journalists. And they basically said that we're less trusted or or the same as a used car dealer. Um, so they thought... We kind of have a sleazy reputation and um, just being someone, um, you know, speaking of, you know, just just being someone from a community that has been mischaracterized, um, you know, as I've mentioned many, many times on the show, I'm from the Muslim community. And, um, you know, once I started paying attention to the way um, journalists write about certain communities, including mine, and uh, some of the biases that are out there. Um, I'm kind of extra sensitive to that, so I don't. I don't think it's naive for you to think that. I mean, I, I try to. I try to. Um, you know, when people are skeptical about me, I try to tell them, like, "Hey, you know, I don't." And I've had to do that actually with my last couple of columns, like tell people, like, you know, they're they're kind of like, "What's your angle?" And you know, when I talked about Iran. Um, I I spoke about Iran a couple, uh, about a year ago, and the protests involving um, 
uh, the women who were taking off their hijabs. And I talked to two um, two professors who were, um, you know, experts on Iran. And, uh, you know, two of the women read my, you know, went back, one of the women, I should say, went back and read my columns. And she just wanted to know where I was coming from and what kind of person I was. So I, or what kind of where my angle was. And she said that after reading my stuff, she knew I could be trusted. So um, I I, I get that. And I, I, I think because now that I'm writing, I think when you're writing, like, you know, quote, unquote, like you're covering events, you're covering, you're covering, trying to be quote, unquote, objective, um, I probably was less sensitive, but now that I'm doing like strong opinion pieces where I'm kind of laying myself out there and I'm taking other people's like, you know, livelihoods and, you know, ideas and viewpoints out there, I'm more sensitive to that. And I, I just want people to know that, you know, you know, I can be trusted. I'm sure some people don't think I can be trusted, but um, I, I, I get that. I totally get that. I, I don't think there's anything. um I don't think the the concept of objectivity exists in journalism. No, no. Uh, but to to paraphrase Mick, since he's getting a lot of airtime today, this is one of his favorite lines. Uh, you should always strive to be fair to someone. For sure, and I totally get that. And I actually, I'm like a you know, you're a boomer. I'm a Gen Xer, but we were kind of trained that, and I always like was. I kind of thought that was the ideal, like you can't put your opinions into a story, but just based on who you are as um, a human being, your background, your experiences are going to color the way you view the world. And that's going to influence the way you write a story. So yeah, there is no such thing as objectivity. And that's something that I've quickly like come to embrace and, uh, and I, I think that's the most important thing is to be fair to people. And I try not to be flip about certain things. I know there's like certain matters that, you know, I think that people when they write columns are too flip about, like, for example, you know, the situation in the Middle East, I've read some like right wing commentators and, and it's just like the dismissal of certain, you know, people and their ideas. Um, that's that then can kind of be. I guess jarring for me, but well, okay. Um, wow, we're we're really on a um, uh, the concept of flip, uh, fair and objective. So I'm going to push back with you a little bit. Um, you said I'm a baby boomer, you're Gen X. I'm not going to push back on that, but <laughs> I, I believe that uh, having been reading newspapers forever, uh, what's the, whatever the generation is before baby boomers, the great generation and the, whatever the silent generation and then baby boomers uh, didn't even pretend they were fair. Uh, they, the, the, the generation, the journalism I grew up reading and then uh, the j- journalists who were the most influential journalists when I was a baby journalist, they were openly unfair. They didn't even, I don't even think they were realized they were no, being unfair. No, that's the thing, but they thought they were being unfair. <laughs> they thought they were being fair, Right. I don't know. I don't know and if they. I, I I do I do think they thought they were being fair. They well they because of their entitlement, they thought that they were the only authority on anything, right? And if like, you know, if someone like me came up to them, you know, they were like they were the establishment. So whatever they thought, they kind of mimicked what everybody else they thought, you know, were right said. And if anybody kind of objected to that, they're like, oh, you're just bringing your biases into it like 
I, I think they thought they were being fair. I think I really do think they thought they were being not fair, but they thought their their viewpoints were the right viewpoints. And you still see that. Mm, you still don't you? I mean, I don't know. I still oh, see no. that. Oh my god, are you kidding? Yeah. I, every day I don't want to embarrass any journalists. I'm just I'm not gonna go down that path. Uh but yeah, I see it all the freaking time. Yeah. And I generally see it. I've you've heard me rant about this on, on so many private phone calls. You might as well do it on the on the mic. The bias against lefties is so strong in this town. So my rant that opened this show that talked about um, how we shouldn't subsidize the the pet projects of billionaires who can pay for it themselves. That is, it's so anybody who articulates that is going to be going up a, a, you're an extra hill, Romana, because there's a bias against that concept. That concept is not viewed. People, like, you know why? Because the people who own the newspapers, by and large, want the handout. They're rich people themselves. They don't see it as a handout. They see it as economic development, something that's good for the city. If it's good for them, it's good for the whole city. So you risk your job. If you write an article that says your boss's pals are a bunch of are feeding at the trough and they can, should pay for this themselves, you risk you're going to get some editor coming down your case. And, and plus, when the flack for the rich guy calls your editor, literally will call your editor. OK, they're not even going to waste their time calling you. They'll call the editor and then the editor will come in and. Romana, let's just stay here. So <laughs> no, it, I, I that's not fair. No, that, no, none of that is fair. I, I I totally agree. I totally agree. And then you know, just 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 things that I've seen in our newsroom has made me like you know. I I started off like I I tell Mick this. Um, I I, I started off thinking, oh, you know, journalists are also. <laughs> So wonderful. It's the same way I think about Americans in America. Like I, I started off like, you know, being a young kid and oh, America is so great. And our, we really strive for to work. You know, we're not perfect. We made mistakes, but we strive for our, our ideals. But the older I get, the more I realize it's not true. We don't care. You know what I mean? So it's, it is like, you know, you start off in journalism very idealistic because you're just like, I remember in one of my journalism classes, um, there was this one young woman who said that um, she was either going to go into journalism or be a lawyer. And that's kind of how I was. And I was so inspired by her because she said something like, well, lawyers hide the truth, but journalists seek the truth. And, and you know, ideally, that's what we're supposed to do. But when it comes down to it, when there's money involved, where there's an, you know, certain people involved or like, you know, people who are paying the newspaper um, to keep it running are involved, then nobody cares. <laughs> then, then it's like the truth is obscured. And I do, Ben, I do agree with you about the lefties. I do agree with you with, about the lefties because I don't think the far right even gets treated like that. Like everybody acts like the, you know, the lefties and their, and their ideas are just so wacko and everything <laughs> they want, you know what I mean? And, but meanwhile, right wingers are like, everybody's like, Oh, like they're all gentle with them. Let's, let's try to find out why they, why they're racist, why they're racist, why they feel so like, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's just disturbing to me. 
I mean, I mean, the lefties, I mean, for me, the lefties are the ones that, that are out there, you know, supporting my community. And they've always been the ones who've been supporting my community from the beginning. So it's interesting, you know, my community is like, you know, a lot of them, a lot of Muslims kind of were like aligning themselves with Republicans when they first came to the United States, because they felt like Republicans were all about, you know, family and like, you know, religion, and they're not, you know what I mean? At the end of the day, it's, um, you know, and so I don't know, and I'm not saying I agree with every single lefty. I mean, lefties can have be flawed like anyone else. But as a group, as a group, they're definitely vilified and in, in, including by by the centrist. And this, this is gonna um, kind of probably go into our discussion about John Stewart. It's like these centrist types are the ones, you know, they get so hot and bothered when they're criticized, you know what I mean, by someone they think is like more left than they are. And that's what I saw happen with John Stewart this week. All right, we'll get into John Stewart in a little bit, but uh, I just I want to give a shout out to uh, the granddaddy of all lefties in uh, in anything conventionally mainstream, Bernie Sanders. Uh, I don't want to go into all the details. I just want to say I had another. I'm fine. My health is good, but I had a um, deal with the health bureaucracy of America uh, this week, and I just want to say our system is insane. And Bernie's been telling it us for how many years now, Romana? How many? Every time I go and I say to the doctors, there's always a moment where I say to the doctor or nurse, "You admit Bernie Sanders was right. Admit he was right." This is insane. It's you, know, you got to go to an emergency room to get something that should be taken for 15 minutes in a health clinic. You know what I'm saying, Ramona? But you're in an emergency room for five hours because everybody gets thrown in an emergency room. That's how we do it. And even if like someone who's like been shot and is, they're trying to save his life and someone who's got gout, we're all in the same emergency room. And um, sometimes the doctors will say to me, yeah, Bernie was right. And then, and then other times... They're like afraid to get political. Well, I don't really want to talk about politics when I'm doing my medicine. Somewhere. But anyway, Bernie was right. Uh, and, uh, you know, not that they're ever going to give any credit. All right. talk. What's your thoughts about Jon Stewart? You got something you want to say about Jon Stewart? Well, the floor is yours. <laughs> did you watch? Did you watch that uh, 10 minute? It was like a t- seven minute uh seven minute analysis about how old Joe Biden and Donald Trump are. And that's what got all the, that's what got all the Democrats, I guess, I guess the liberals that you call got them all hot and bothered. So anyway, I, I have to first say that I've been a John Stewart fan since like way a long time ago, like right after I graduated, like a couple of years after I graduated from college, he had a show which is called the John Stewart show. And it was like late, really late at night. Like even at past, like all the other late night shows and, the, they had like the, I remember the set was like a car seat, like, uh, and then he had that. And, and he was, I thought he was so funny and I've kind of been a fan ever since I haven't watched him like, you know, all these years, but I was kind of happy that he was coming back to the daily show. So anyway, he comes back and he was just kind of talking about how, um, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are both old and, you know, and then, you know, I, I think a lot of people, a lot of, and then he kind of made, he kind of like um, made fun of like Biden and how like, you know, all the, you know, all his like advisors keep saying how he's like, you know, totally like with it. And, you know, he's very articulate. And then, then he's like, well, why don't you guys show a clip of him, 
when he's being articulate or something. And then he then he then he kind of makes fun of Joe Biden for a while. And he kind of makes fun of these both Trump and Biden. And he, you know, at one point, John Stewart's like, oh, like, bring the camera up close to my face. And, you know, John Stewart, obviously, he has gray hair now compared to when he first started out and had brown hair. And he's like, and he goes, I'm old. <laughs> and he's like, these guys wish they were me, you know, and, and, and he, and he, and he kind of took a swipe at Biden, like, I think later, he, he, he talked about Biden. And uh, John Stewart has also been uh, critical of Israel, also. And John Stewart, as we know, is also Jewish. And he said something like, um, he goes, Biden has been describing Israel's like bombing as quote, over the top. And he said, that's like, my mom describing the halftime show and saying it's a little much. So I, I thought it, I thought it was pretty funny. Like I didn't think it was really that controversial. But then the next day on Twitter, you saw all these people all upset. Like you know, all of these Democrats um, all upset, and you know, and then you know, a lot of lefties were kind of like, I thought it was funny. What's what's the big deal? It is true. Joe Biden is old. So yeah, I, I I'm pretty glad that he's back because I think we're going to get more of that. Um, that's just going to fuel him and get him more energized and pen, pen, you know pepped up. And one of the things I like about Jon Stewart is he does like, he's one of those comedians that does talk about the news and current events and really dissects it. And uh, is sometimes even more on point and more um, about the truth than actual journalists. I have to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, because he, he, well, he, Okay, I got to say exactly what I want to say because all of a sudden I was there conflicting ideas that came into my head at the same time, and I was trying to articulate them at the same time. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, Romana, but that was amazing what just happened in my head. Uh, So uh, there's that line: "The lady doth protest too much," and this is what I say about John Stewart. I think he's really funny. I think he's really smart. I appreciate the fact that uh, he points out the foibles of the liberals who are in the run the democratic party and and occasionally the left and he makes fun of bernie uh as well so he's a comedian and it's all open game so yeah much love uh for john stewart but then uh he has this moment where he pretends that he doesn't really like what standards don't apply to him i've i've seen him have debates uh where um with righty right wingers and they'll all of a sudden he falls into this thing where I'm not really a journalist. I'm an entertainer. I'm a comedian. I'm like, come on, man, <laughs> don't run away from it. You know, like Ramana saying, puts that column out there. Gee, I, I don't really mean it. I'm just entertaining people. You know, I don't really, you know what I'm saying? Ramana, I always thought, come on, man, just own up to what you're doing. Just be honest about what you're doing. Uh, so anyway, that's my, my, that my only complaint about John Stewart, who he really changed so much. I mean, how people approach, well, column writing journalism, you know what I mean? He put humor into it and then all of a sudden everybody was putting humor into it. I know he, uh, he influenced me, uh, immensely. Let's get it. I want to hear your thoughts about this about old and, uh, I'm going to say something that, um, and get your reaction to it. Uh, Joe Biden is old. I mean, it's not even old like he's old age-wise, which he is, but he's old. And so like Bernie Sanders, another mention to Bernie, my beloved Bernie, is old. He's even older than 
I'm talking about uh, age than Joe Biden, I think. I think Bernie's older than Joe. But Bernie sounds vibrant when he talks, you know? And um, Bernie's always on point. Bernie can debate anybody. Bernie go up against Donald Trump at his age, and he'll be focused, and and he'll support his statements uh, with facts. Uh, he'll be quick on his feet. He'll handle a counterpunch. He'll mock Trump when he when, he, when Trump starts playing his games, little Trump games and stuff like that. So, like to a certain degree, it's not even about your age. It's just about the way your appearance is, and. He's old, Ramon. I don't, want to say, I don't know how you're going to avoid that. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, and I don't. I don't want to be ageist. I'm not saying that you can't be old and capable. That's definitely true. But at the same time, I don't know. I, I, I yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. It's like, yeah, there's definitely like, it's like Mitch McConnell, right? Like, we're. It's like, how do you? How do you justify someone like that being in office? Like, I don't even think I should be in office, but I could probably do a better. You know, it's like Mitch McConnell, just like he has whatever condition he has. He just freezes up. And and um, if you're not capable at a certain point, you're leaving the country. You have to know what's happening. And I don't know. I just feel like some some of the instances that we've seen Joe Biden, like in public, it it, it just like. I mean, he's having a lot of senior moments, in my opinion. But and I'm not saying that, oh, he, you know, he's not smart or anything. Like, I definitely don't disagree. I, I don't definitely, definitely don't agree with a lot of things that he's done in the in the last couple of months, especially when it comes to the Middle East. But I, I, I do think he's old. But I don't know. Are the Democrats going to get a replacement for him? I don't know. No. I mean, no, it's, I, mean it's, it, I, I think everybody. Well, I just think this is one of the problems in our country, or at least with the Democrats. It's like the old people are just not letting it go, you know? Yeah. So I had a guest come on the show and I, I, I can't, here's a senior moment. I can't, well, I, my defense, I have seven guests a week. Uh, I can't remember which guest who said it. So I wish I could give this person credit, uh, made the bold prediction. Neither Biden nor Trump would be on the presidential ballot in November for one reason or another. So uh, I don't, I can't imagine a world where the Democrats replace Joe Biden with in the face of Joe Biden's resistance, but he is old. So who knows? Um, all right. So you mentioned Mitch McConnell. Let's say he had no choice. Can't duck and dodge this by saying you'd vote for a third party. You had no choice and you had to vote. And your choice was Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell. Who would you vote for? Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I th- can I just sit out this vote? No, I got no choice. Um, I guess I don't know. Maybe Mitch McConnell. Probably Mitch McConnell. I'm not saying I. 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 I it would be like it would. I don't know. I'd be kind of. Um, I, I, it would be really hard, but I guess if I had to, I would. I if you were putting a gun to my head, I would. I, I would. I would say Mitch McConnell. It's a. It's a. Uh, yeah, a metaphorical gun to your head. It's not a literal gun. Uh, yeah, I'm saying I would vote for Mitch McConnell because, as uh, lousy as I think he is, and as horrific as I think his politics are, as uh, upset I, I am at his blatant hypocrisy when it came to Supreme Court nominees. Uh, I 
I believe to he's he's not a like a he's not a, he didn't commit a sexual assault. You know, he uh, isn't a, a cheat in his business world. Uh, and uh, he did not attempt to stage a coup. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like, I admit he's, yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't think there's pretty much anybody in established politics today uh, that I would, wouldn't vote for in, in a one-on-one with Trump. Um, so anyway. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and and Mitch McConnell yeah. also has a wife that became like a an ex-wife that became a super feminist. And I don't think his kids like him. So I think it would be more entertaining. Yeah, than Donald more. Trump, <laughs> whose kids, Donald Trump, whose kids like, you know, do whatever he says. But I think Mitch McConnell's kids have like tweeted about him. And his wife like is like this like like this big feminist scholar. So I, I, I think that's I, I think it would be yeah. interesting. So. Yeah, fun Thanksgiving with the McConnells. Um, uh, all right, you mentioned your column. Uh, what was what, what, your column about, or what is it about? Well, it's kind of about um, protests, and I'm kind of talking about the pro-Palestinian protests and how people have been bothered and annoyed by it, and not everybody's like on board with it, and they find the protesters annoying. Kind of talking, kind of comparing it, or using like. I found a study that said Americans historically don't like protests in America. They're all on board whenever they see people overseas causing, you know, you know, having these mass rallies and standing up against the government or, you know, calling, you know, for justice. They like are ready to do that. But when there's a protest in actual America, at the time, no Americans like most Americans. I shouldn't say no Americans because obviously people are protesting. But at the time, most Americans are not in favor of it and, in fact, object to any type of protest. And then it's only until like decades later when they're watching it about it in a documentary. Yeah. Um, they all start crying about it and like, you know, saying, oh, my God, you know, like like kind of like the the 1968 Democratic National Convention. At the time, they probably wanted all of them. You know, at the time, a lot of Americans and a lot of Chicagoans probably wanted were glad that the protests were protesters were getting beaten up. But then years later, it's like everybody's crying about it. And so um, so I found I, I there have been, um, you know, studies that show that. And so like Americans, like when they saw, you know, the um, uh, the Chinese students in 1989 and the the young man stand up um, in front of the tanks. They were all moved by that. Um, when the Arab Springs, hap- you know, um, protests happened in the Middle East and North Africa, everybody was all excited about that. But they're not they don't feel the same way when people question our own government in the United States. And so kind of like mix it with the um, with some of the people complaining about the protesters here, like people have been complaining about um, blocking traffic and, you know, people, you know, saying, oh, they're they're hurting their cause. And the thing is, right before the March on Washington, um, 50 percent of whites surveyed also said that Martin Luther King was hurting the cause for Negro, quote, Negro rights. So I'm just saying that these there's parallels about the way Americans attitudes are towards protest and dissent in their own countries, because they tend, Americans tend to think that whatever their country does or their politicians are doing are always doing the right thing. That's what I think. And, All and, right. and so let me ask you yeah. this. 
Do you think that's a cross the board attitude on every issue, or do you think uh, that only re- is uh, directed at issues they disagree with? For instance, um, so if someone says, "Oh my God, I, I cannot stand these uh, pro-Palestinian protesters. I wish they go away," it's because the people saying that uh, don't support Palestinian rights are or are really aggressively uh, fanatical about. Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, you, you understand what I'm saying? No, of course. Uh, and of course, to like if they saw a MAGA, if they saw a pro-Israel mayor, uh, rally uh, in in Washington Mall, they go, oh, "That's that's America. That's what American democracy is all about." So, in other words, they pick and choose, and right, and vice. And by the way, vice versa. You know yeah. what I mean? The same. Yeah, but it's usually it's usually the protests that are. Um, calling out our own government that the ones, you know, people are getting all hot and bothered about. I mean, there was a pro-Israel Israel rally in Washington, D.C., but I guess because there's not that many, it's like there's more pro-Palestinian rallies, and so there's more people speaking out against it, and that's how it was with Vietnam. Like, they probably had some rallies in solidarity with what's happening, what happened in Vietnam, or what was happening in Vietnam. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's pro- that's probably true. But that's what I'm just saying, that most Americans tend to not care about these things. So when they so the if you take away all the people who do care about what's happening in the Middle East and you talk about the people who are a little more little more like not paying attention to it or just apathetic to what's happening in the Middle East, they're the ones they do get mad at the protesters, I think. I think because they're just like, oh, just they just need to like stop it. You know, they're they're ruining my day. I got it. My commute's getting longer. I got to get get to X, Y, and Z. And of course, you know, people are going to get frustrated, annoyed. I probably would too. But I I think to the larger point is that there is like when people do stand up against our own government. You know, and I guess this is different than obviously the Capitol riots. You know, that's like a riot. I'm talking about peaceful demonstrations, I think. And, you know, maybe someone doesn't think that it's peaceful when someone's screaming or something like that. But I'm talking about demonstrations where people are, you know, talking about death and destruction and war. You know, there. I think it's it's because it's a, an affront to what our leaders are saying. I think a lot of people who are a little more not paying attention, they tend to be disgruntled about the protesters. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, as opposed to just hating the message. And there's just also prejudice and bias uh, in it. And I'll give you an example with me. Um, So, yes, uh, I absolutely, I don't even consider the insurrection a protest. Yeah, Uh, no, I don't either. I don't either. But I'm just thinking in case you have a MAGA listener. But there was... (laughs) You're being fair. To be fair, if Mick Dumpke were handling this, to be fair, the MAGA listener. Uh, and, um, but follow me, Romana. Before uh, the march, the, the uh, insurrectionists uh, headed on the Capitol, they were at a, a protest rally led by Trump. Uh, and at that, Trump, at that rally, Trump, uh, this is the day before, no, not the day, no, this is the day of that the Senate was going to uh, officially declare Biden the winner. Trump was still trying to uh, subvert the election. And uh, that was a, a protest. And I was like, what a dumb protest. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was like, oh, they get their right, their First Amendment protected right. I didn't even like, think I'm like, what a stupid protest. What a fake lie. What a lie. He's peddling a lie to people who are fools. That's, that was my... 
do I fit your category? Am I being unfair to those protesters? No, I mean, no, you're not being unfair to those protesters, but it's like, that was like one, right? Like, I mean, we're, no, we're not going to, like you and I aren't going to be like, or most people aren't going to be like looking at someone who's driving into protesters as like, or, you know, you know, whenever there's counter protesters, there's definitely like, there's a tendency for something to happen. But I think you're being fair. Like, I, I would probably say the same thing. Like if there was a bunch of like, you know, there was there at my mom's, um, at my mom's, like near my mom's house, there was, I don't know why, but there was a bunch of people, like five people like outside with Trump signs one day. And that's real. I mean, I don't think there's like, that many Trump supporters in my mom's neighborhood, but there's got to be some, right? But they like came and, and there was a bunch of people once who showed up for a rally anti-maskers. So there are anti, you know, I'd probably be against anti-maskers, right? But the first, you know, I'm not, I don't know. It's just, it's just like, it's a little different. Like, you know what I mean? Because, you know, things like the anti-masker protests don't become this like widespread. I mean, I guess they could be, but you know what I mean? It's not like you see these, like, it's not across, there were across the country, but they're not in the sheer number. They're not in the numbers of the pro-Palestinian marches, but no, no, I know what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. You can, you can critique my column, but, um, I, it was about it was about like social justice movements and have kind of focused on anti anti war, yeah, anti military yeah. responses. But no, I know it's what you're tough. saying. If I saw yeah. someone like protesting, oh, I don't want to wear a mask, I'd probably be like, oh my god, and just keep walking. But <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, all right, let's close with a little love uh, for Larry David. I'm a little embarrassed to make this confession. The depths of my love for appreciation for Larry David's comedy. Never or ceaseless, I think. I I realize he's, the persona of Larry David uh, is a, an arrogant, contemptible, nasty, uh, selfish human being. And so it's like, why do I like this guy's humor so much? Um, and I guess I, I think about it. I think about it a lot because I watch those Curb shows. I watch a Curb show like if I'm waiting for my wife to come home and I'm just killing time and the bulls are getting crushed, I'll put on an old curb show and watch it like the fourth time. It's amazing. I guess what it is I like about him is that he's showing us all what, like how much of him is in all of us. And we're all a bunch of phonies <laughs> because we're, we're all constantly measuring how much we're getting as a, compared to somebody else. Even if we have more than enough, do you follow what I'm saying? Uh, I guess that's just one reason why when I've asked myself this question. Uh, so I, I just realized the first time, I think we ever had a conversation. You share my love for Larry David's comedy. Did not know that. And you're uh, watching what he says will be the last year of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I'm not sure I believe him that this will be the last year. It could be like the who coming back for another reunion tour. Um, but uh, why don't you give your thoughts why you like uh, Larry David's humor so much? Yeah, I thought I thought you made a good point because, yeah, he's this like cranky old man and he hates people and I like people. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I, I that's the whole like premise of a show. He's just like this cranky. He's he's playing. I, I read that he's just basically playing a crankier version of himself. So he's like this rich Hollywood insider. And, uh, you know, he hates people and, you know, he, he's not really politically correct all the time. And, but I think, I think, yeah, I think he does show that whatever he's feeling, we've all had those kind of experiences. Like, even though like, you know, 
like, you know, his, his friends, like, you know, his, like Richard Lewis, I think is hilarious on the show. And like, he had the fr- friend, the late actor who played Funkhauser died and they were just hilarious, just kind of, um, a lot of their problems, you know, there's these rich guys, rich Hollywood insider guys, but they kind of have the same kind of problems we do when we go out to a restaurant or anything like that. And, and just the kind of like the small talk we have to make with people and all those, it's, it's just, it's just, a, it's just a funny show. I mean, I, I watched Seinfeld when it came out like uh years ago and it's that's still funny but i don't think it's as funny as curb your enthusiasm like i i think curb your enthusiasm's just on a totally different level and it's it's um it just it just kind of cracks me up and i've been watching i think it's been 20 years right did the first season start like in 2002 or one and so it's been god it's been over 20 years, I think. And, um, and, you know, and I was explaining to Mick who doesn't watch the show that, you know, there's not a season every year. Sometimes there's like a couple of years between the next season comes and it's just, it's just really funny. And I, I like the fact that, you know, there's actual actors who play themselves like in, in the, in the, in the show. Yeah. So it's pretty, it's pretty funny. And, and they um, do it the same way Larry David does it. Just to your point, they like exaggerated versions of themselves. Yeah. You, you know, yeah. And so I, I think, I think it's, it's a pretty funny show. And I mean, I, I was kind of pleased to see Bruce Springsteen made a cameo on the show. So that means, that means Bruce Springsteen likes the show too. I mean, you know, I'm a Bruce Springsteen fan. So, you know, my younger sister, Almas, who, you know, um, I was watching it before her. And so I texted her, I'm like, Oh, you're really going to, she's like, a, she's like a bigger fan of Springsteen than I am. So I sent her a text, um, when, uh, when, when, uh, basically, um, that he appeared and told her, you're going to really love this episode. But I mean, they, they do. It also has a lot of political insight. Like I, I, I probably disagree with Larry David on something. So I think he defended Woody Allen at some point. Um, but he's like, I remember when he did that whole thing with the MAGA hat in LA, uh, if you, LA, it, and, and that was like the best, that was the, the funniest episode. One of the funny, I mean, there's so many funny episodes, but him just like not wanting to socialize with this guy. So he just put on a MAGA hat. So he didn't have, so the guy won't want to talk to him because he just, you know, cause Lori David doesn't like talking to people. So he's like, this is a great repellent from, from, from people in LA. So I, I thought it was really good. So yeah, so it's just a funny show. That's so classic Larry David on so many levels. One of which is he, he it doesn't care. Here is where he's politically correct. He doesn't care that the MAGA hat itself has a greater symbol about uh, the injustice that exists in our world and the idiocy of Americans who just blindly follow whatever prejudice they have. That's what the MAGA hat represents uh, and an intolerance and a hatred and a racism. He, he, he's like, what this guy to, you know, he, <laughs> it's like, you know, I want, that's kind of the, you know, so he just uses it. Yeah. He's, just uses it for whatever his needs are. So remember when the at the end of the show when the the biker comes yeah. up to him, he puts the maga hat. Oh my brother, I'll leave you alone next time. Don't come. And that's Larry David. Yeah, it's- exactly. And I think that's what the genius of it because he's kind of pointing to his entitlement, right? Yeah. So yeah. And, and and that's and, the, and and that kind of points to a little bit about and, and the entitlement of his friends too. Like um the last two episodes where they involving the lawn jockey, like his his agent's wife was like, you know, doesn't want to pay for the deposit, even though she's like this rich woman and she wants to keep this lawn jockey on on her Airbnb rental because she doesn't want to pay the deposit if something happens to it. So 
I think I think he's he's also pointing to the entitlement also. Yeah, absolutely. So. Hilarious, dude. And by the way, well, I'll just have to say this. Uh, Larry David owes everything in his comedy to Woody Allen. Put aside <laughs> the twisted Woody Allen. Okay, well, let's just forget for a moment that uh, he sexually assaulted his, his adopted daughter. Let's just put that aside. It's kind of like me talking about Michael Jackson. Uh, can we just forget Ben for a moment? Um, Woody Allen, I, I know you were you. He, you're too young for most of Woody Allen, but he invented the type of comedy that Larry David has developed. He invented it, as far as I'm concerned. And Larry David emulates him in so many ways. If you're a Woody Allen fan, or were before all these revelations came out. You recognize, oh, that's Woody Allen. Oh, that the MAGA hat bit was so straight up Woody Allen. Uh, it's like something out of bananas, and uh, so I kind of like on one weird level, this is going to sound strange. I, I, I was like, okay, Larry David, uh, I don't know what your defense of Woody Allen is. I have no idea, but it's like you at least have to acknowledge that this guy is like the. How do I put this? the source of your career. Do you follow what I'm saying? Otherwise you're rewriting history. So I don't know if that's, it sounds like a defensive Woody Allen. Trust me. It's not. Um, all right, Romana, uh, another great show. Thank you very much. Uh, her column will be, uh, well, by the time you hear this, will it be, pu- yeah. Is it public now? Or is, as we speak, is it on uh, the No, internet? because I got to fit, I got to fix a typo or two. Right. So it's not, probably not public. Well, uh, I'll let you go to your thing, but I always read your column on Sundays, the actual bright one, the real paper. Uh, I read it there. And uh, uh, thank you, bright one. I want to say Chicago Sun-Times uh, for running the obituary of my dear friend, Joyce Owens, who died. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. She, she is um, uh, Monroe uh, Anderson's wife. Monroe was oh, on no. the show every Wednesday. Yeah. So we did a tribute uh, to her on Wednesday. I urge everybody to check it out if you uh, know Joyce or if you don't know her. But you probably know her. Listening to the show, she got as much airtime in Monroe's segments as Mick gets in yours. Uh, so just think about that. Hmm. And she was an absolutely brilliant artist, super smart conversationalist. Uh, and not afraid to twist, you know, like to get into it with you a little bit. Uh, you know, she challenged you. She would, Mm. (laughs) I was challenged by Joyce many times and she died. Yeah. That's a shame. My condolences to you. Yeah. And Monroe. And Monroe. Uh, Yeah. yeah. And everybody else who loved her. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. It's terrible. Yeah. And there was a nice, uh, there was an obituary in the Sun Times with pictures. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, All right. Uh, Thank you very much, Romano Hussein. That's Romano Hussein. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm